Welcome to Superheroes of Science. I'm Steven. And I'm Sarah. We co-host Science from the Experts. Our guests are professionals doing cutting-edge science right now. They're experts in their field discussing what they know best. So listen up and learn real science from real people. Subscribe now and stay informed of our latest episodes and show your support. Joining us today for Superheroes of Science, we're so excited to welcome Melanie Beasley. Melanie is an assistant professor in anthropology here at Purdue University. So welcome and thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, are you kidding? We were very excited. We got to talk to you last week a little bit. We're like, oh yeah, she's got to be on. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very happy to be here and always happy to talk about the science that we're doing over here in anthropology. Hey, I got to admit, it caught me off guard because I didn't think you would be doing that kind of science. That That is the wonderful thing about anthropology is it's a holistic discipline that asks questions about what it means to be human from all different types of directions. You have biological, like what I do. You have archaeology, investigating people in the past. You have cultural uh, anthropology, investigating different types of, of cultures. You have linguistics, investigating different types of language. So really, it is about seeing the human experience uh, in the world in the past and in the present. So, so anthropologists do a wide variety of things. Yeah, like I said, we got an overview from Andrew about a year ago, and that was just super awesome. And uh, then when we had got to talk to you last week but you you kind of you specialize in something a little different here and so uh, it's a well I'll let you explain that then we'll bombard you with questions about it (laughs) absolutely uh so kind of my area of specialty within biological anthropology is I use a very specific method and then I ask questions about how humans interact with the environment across different time periods. So I use stable isotope analysis to investigate biological tissues. So hair, fingernails, teeth, bones, uh, to then ask questions about what the past environment was like that humans lived in 4 million years ago in East Africa. Or I investigate questions about what prehistoric diet was like uh, in prehistoric California or I do forensic work that is with modern humans and asking the questions about how we can use stable isotopes to help answer questions of who someone was in the case of an unidentified human remains case. So you can use that technique when more traditional techniques have not yielded an identification then we can add other aspects of an individual's life history so that then we can hopefully identify them and return them to their family and their loved ones so their their loved ones know what happened to them. So all of it is about this kind of dignity, even in death, of having the right to be recognized as the individual who you are. And so I use stable isotopes as this very powerful method to ask these types of questions. You had mentioned using stable isotopes as an alternative to traditional forensic work. And and so is that meaning like when there isn't DNA samples available or? or... Exactly. So forensic anthropologists 
who are working on unidentified human remains to help identify them will look at the skeleton using a variety of methods to estimate sex, estimate ancestry, estimate age, estimate stature, so that you can get this biological profile to essentially match to a missing persons report that is, is reported to law enforcement. Um, but sometimes those methods don't work and you still don't have an individual who's identified. Those individuals will sometimes have uh, then DNA samples taken from their bones or teeth, but you can only identify that person if you have a comparative sample that is referencing that then can create that match. So oftentimes there are situations where even you can, if you can get a DNA sample of the case, you don't necessarily have the appropriate reference sample because maybe their family or loved ones don't know to go and give a reference sample because they, they don't know that their, their missing persons has actually uh, is now a, a deceased individual that is an unknown uh, human remains case. And so in that, in, in that instance, stable isotopes is another avenue that uh, investigators can use to help with identifying that individual. So it's, a, it's really a exclusionary technique that we can use that if you have a long list of missing persons and you have that, that case, you can start to say, well, we know that in this instance of this case, we'll use me as an example. I'm from California. All of my teeth, they're going to rec have a signature that looks like someone from California. My hair, if I then had took and analyzed my hair, this little bit down here was when I was living in Tennessee. Probably there's when I was living in Indiana. The pandemic hit and I moved back to California for a few months. And so I was in California and then I've come back to Indiana. So it could a record of where I've been on the geographic landscape. And so we can use that as kind of a story of where our missing persons have been by using these techniques. How does that work? So the simple way to think about it is you are what you eat and drink. So essentially the water that you consume, the foods that you eat are laid down in biological tissues. And then we can look at isotopes of carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, hydrogen, sulfur, strontium. These are kind of the usual isotopes that, that we look at to do this type of investigation. We can analyze them in tissues. So in my hair, in fingernails, in teeth, and then you get a value and that value can then be used as a reference to how those isotopes distribute on the landscape. And so that's, that's kind of the simple way of thinking everything that you're eating, everything that you're drinking is, is an averaging out in your body and, and creating values that are then recorded in your tissues as they grow. And so when you're mentioning from like Tennessee and then Indiana and then California, so are you saying like different regions would have different abundances of these isotopes? Exactly. So because of how these isotopes, specifically things like oxygen, uh, oxygen and hydrogen, which are really uh, good examples, they will systematically change 
uh, as you move across a landscape. So when rain is, is moving in clouds and raining out across the continent of the United States, those values are systematically changing. So we can use those values and how that changes across the landscape to narrow down where maybe someone was living when they were having that particular tissue that was growing. We can use other isotopes. So then we were looking at a, a multi-isotope um, kind of uh, method. We could look at strontium. Strontium is gonna be recorded in the rock, which then is washed through the water incorporated into foods that we eat. And so that strontium is then recorded into our same biological tissues. So if you have an oxygen hydrogen value and you have a strontium value, you can overlay them where they would be expected that they would have the same values. And that can greatly narrow down where a, a missing person search would be kind of focused of looking at say maybe the lower 48 states to maybe just a few regions in the United States that have both the matching values of oxygen and hydrogen and the matching values of strontium. So it's a, a very powerful tool to kind of narrow down where someone might have been from. Okay. It, wow. Um, I, I, I'm just wondering, could you, since we're talking about them, I feel like we didn't really like define it yet, but yeah. what is the difference between a stable isotope and a radioactive isotope? Because I feel like kids, when they're learning about this in science class, they might recognize isotope, but then- right. So the, so the easiest way in my mind to, to think about it um, is when you first start learning about elements, you learn about the protons and the neutrons and the electrons that are in those, that make up those various elements in, in those atoms. And all that stable isotopes mean, all, all that isotopes are, is you have some element that's gonna have some number of protons that's defining that element and then you'll get a different number of neutrons. And those different numbers of neutrons will give it a different mass. And so a different mass is going to react differently in a chemical reaction. So the easy way to think about it is that if you have two isotopes, let's take carbon, carbon 13 and carbon 12. Well, that carbon 13 just means there's that one extra neutron. And that one extra neutron is going to make that element heavier. And so in a chemical reaction that would be using carbon, so photosynthesis, as that carbon moves from being in carbon dioxide to being absorbed by a plant, that plant, that chemical process of that photosynthesis, that carbon, because it's heavier, is going to react slower. And that lighter one, the carbon 12, is going to react faster. And so some plants, like to absorb carbon 13 and some plants like to absorb carbon 12 in those reactions. So you get these different values of the ratio based on if that plant likes say that prefers carbon 13 to carbon 12, then that ratio is gonna have a more positive value compared to a plant that is gonna like carbon 12, but more compared to carbon 13. And what's interesting about that, especially with, with carbon, 
is that then we can look at all of the plants that people eat and they're gonna have distinct values. And as it turns out, corn, which we eat a lot of, and sugar, which we eat a lot of, they're, they're C4 plants. They really like that carbon 13, that heavier carbon. And so they're gonna have a unique value compared to say other, other foods that we eat, say rice or grains or fruits and vegetables that are, a lot of them are going to be a C3 plant, which is preferentially liking that carbon 12. And so this, this whole kind of idea of you have this element, it has a different weight, that different weight causes it to react differently in a chemical reaction that then is recorded in plants and then is recorded in us because we eat those plants. So can you detect like my dietary changes? Yes. So yes. So if I um, said I, I was all vegan and then you, you, you took, well, I guess it had to be a fingernail. Um, yeah. I was going to say it might be a little more. Yeah. If, if you had hair, I'm hiding. grow a beard, we'll, we'll shave some off, but yeah, fingernails, would work as well. And so that's what researchers uh, have done in experiments is looking to see how quickly you can detect someone who switches their diet to, to vegan, to vegetarian. Mm -hmm. You can see that in, in hair and in fingernails. Um, it's harder to see in bone and in teeth because that is an averaging of when that bone was essentially remodeled and laid down. So my bones would be a mixture of having over the last about average of 10 years, you're, you get a new skeleton as an adult. Oh. And so the skeleton that I've had has been with me through graduate school in California, through my postdoc in Tennessee, and now here as a professor in Indiana. So my bone values would be an average of my diet over those 10 years in those three different states. So that averaging, even if I set, decided for a couple of months, hey, I'm gonna be vegetarian, that, that signature would, probably wouldn't be picked up in my bones. Mm -hmm. If I looked at my hair, I could see that change in my diet. So it, it depends on what tissues you're looking at, what isotopes you're looking at, and what the question is that, that you have. Sometimes um, questions can be very straightforward with using isotopes. I worked on one project um, with uh, the, milita the military, the Defense POW MIA Accounting Agency. We did a pilot study back in 2012, 2013. And the question that uh, my colleagues and I so on that paper were Eric Bartolink, Greg Berg, and Leslie Chesson. And the four of us asked the question, could we use the difference in diet that Americans have versus other countries uh, in Asia to then distinguish the remains of past war dead from the United States versus past war dead from who originated in these other countries because DPAA, their mission is to identify all past war dead. So essentially when, when you sign up to be 
in the United States uh, military, there is an agreement between the military uh, and the individual that say, we as the United States government will do everything in our power to bring you home. And so there are still remains that are deemed identifiable in, in the United States. Well, they're not, they are United States citizens. They're in other countries uh, that are still being excavated, recovered, and analyzed to hopefully return them to their families. And so that effort, if we are trying to do DNA analysis on every single fragment of bone can not only be expensive, but time consuming. So the question was, can we use the principle of stable isotopes as essentially a, a first step to differentiate, do we have an American soldier or do we have a, non a non-US born uh, Amer a soldier that then is a soldier of, of another country? And so that was the idea behind the project. And it turns out just with carbon, so just looking at one single isotope, we can with 97% confidence identify someone who is US born versus who is not US born. Um, and that's, that's pretty powerful when you think of, you know, this agency's mandate to help identify past war dead and this singular method that can help expedite the process and prioritize essentially those, those bone fragments or those, those remains that are most likely uh, going to be a U.S. service member. Uh, so these, these are the types of projects that, that we can help with these very basic humanitarian efforts because everyone, even in death, has a basic human right to be recognized of who they are and return to their families. And so that's what there is a, a group of us scientists that, that are working on these types of questions. Wow, that's absolutely amazing. Yeah. Now, does today's technology or not technology, well, kind of, does today's e-commerce or maybe not e-commerce, just commerce, uh -huh. does that change and impact things? I mean, I, I, I went to the store, I bought salmon last week and uh, I noticed it wasn't from the U.S. <laughs> and I eat it every week. And so, uh, yes. And, and yes, the, the, the fact that we do not always eat local uh, in, does impact. There have been studies looking at, at, at how this kind of global supermarket impacts um, what, what we eat and what we consume. But it, it turns out that because you're doing, you know, an average of average, we still end up with enough of a local signature and it also depends on what do you mean by local? You know, local, if our question is someone who was born in the United States versus a country, say in Asia, you have a lot more kind of wiggle room of that value that is still gonna indicate that you are, are from the United States. If we are talking about an individual and we're questioning if they're from, you know, the north part of Indiana or the south part of Indiana, that local value will be, you'll want to be a lot more exact. So it, it kind of, it depends. It depends on, on what your question is. 
um, some of, of the work that, that we've started to do uh, with stable isotopes to help identify remains is also applied to individuals um, who are unidentified from crossing the border between Mexico and the United States. So in that case, individuals who are migrants who are, are coming up and crossing the border into the United States, they could be from Mexico, they could be from Central America, they could be from South America. And so looking at those values, suddenly a lot of those countries culturally are going to have very corn-based kind of diets. So maybe a dietary isotope won't distinguish them as well as a different isotope that will have more of a geographic spread. So you really want to think about what isotope is best applied to the question that you're asking. What is the scale of specificity that you're looking to achieve? So, so a lot of this depends, depends on the question that you're trying to answer. Okay, walk me through this uh, a scenario. Yeah, um, we, uh, I'm, I'm in northern Sweden on a glacier walking through. I find a body, um, unclothed, and so I can't tell culturally where they're from because due to clothing. Nor do I know if it's been there a hundred years or someone dumped it in a, or fell in, someone drank too much and fell into a crevice there last week. Um, all I know is it's frozen solid. And we call you. Walk me through what happens. Um, so first I'd be like, this is not my area of specialty. So I would try to call somebody else. Um, no, so, so that, that's, so that's interesting. Cause you had actually asked me earlier, what's the difference between like, what is a stable isotope versus a radioactive one? So this, <laughs> this example goes perfectly to that question because that might then be someone where you're tying into someone who does radioactive isotope work. So radioactive isotopes will often answer that question of how long has someone been there? That, that question of time of, is this someone from thousands of years ago, hundreds of years ago, are they a recent person? So I will say the recent, the recent dating is not, not very good, but, but carbon using C14 dating, which is carbon 14, is the radioactive version. And that just means it's changing really fast and degrading into another element. In that case, it's degrading into nitrogen 14. And so as that, that process, that radioactive decay happens, they can use the similar principle of looking at the ratio between the original isotope and the isotope that it degrades into to then estimate based on how quickly that process is supposed to happen, that's how they calculate an age. I don't deal with radioactive <laughs> So I actually don't do that type of that type of work. But if we find I out if they do it, we one. find out it's 60 years old, then now we're in your world, right? Yeah. Now now you're more with the forensics. Now you're closer into my world. Yeah. All right. So it's 50, um, and, 50 years and, old. Now what do we exactly. do? Exactly. Then so then you could take samples of that individual if you're questioning. If you were asking where were they originally born, we'd get a sample of the tooth. Because the tooth 
we all know once you lose your teeth, that's it, right? Your, your teeth don't remodel. The teeth that you have when you're born are the teeth that you have throughout your entire life. And so when your tooth is formed, that's going to record the information that is, is of where you were originally living when that tooth formed. So for me, I will always be by the, by my teeth. I will always be a Californian. Your bones, they remodel. So I mentioned that already that you have your skeleton as an adult, you have your skeleton on average for depending on the bone, you have it for about 10 years. And so if we were wondering where that individual in Sweden, in the ice had been living right before they died and that, that decade before life, then you would test their bone. If you wanted to know, say they had long hair, we wanted to see if they had been moving and traveling from multiple different geographic areas, we could test their hair. If we took their fingernails, your fingernails, the, your fingernail clippings, so the ones on the edge, that represents about five to six months ago, essentially. So it takes about five to six months for your fingernails to, to grow out to your fingertips. So if they had fingernails, we could see and test where, where they were inhabiting. So again, it goes to what tissues are available, what's the question that we're asking, uh, and then you can make those, those kinds of determinations. Now, when to, once you get a, a, like a bone sample, let's say they send you the bone sample, mm -hmm. what process, what is the scientific process that you're doing at that point until you get results that you're looking at and comparing to the databases? Um, so, so that's, that's, that's a great question. Uh, that, changes a little depending on what isotope, but the general process is you're going to take that bone, you're gonna manually clean that bone, you're going to then prep it either into a powder or into that chunk of bone. You'll treat it with chemicals. Again, the chemicals will determine which isotope you're prepping for. Once, once you have that in whatever, usually a powder, um, that you're going to, or, or whatever small action that you're going to analyze, you then take that sample that's now supposedly cleaned, supposedly, you know, ready for analysis, and you put that onto a mass spectrometer. That mass spectrometer, depending on what isotope you are, are interested in, you'll load it onto a peripheral instrument. So that basically is just before it gets to the mass spec, it's gonna help either combust that sample so that you get a gas, or it's going to react that, to that sample in some way. And so whatever peripheral you need to load it onto, you'll load it onto that. It'll do what it does to, to prep that sample so that then it can be run through the mass spectrometer. Then on the other end, there are detectors, they're called Faraday cups. These cups will collect that information, and then you'll be able to calculate those ratios of, say, say if we're looking at carbon, carbon 13 to, to carbon 12. So that, that is kind of your process. Then you get those values back, and all of those values have to then be kind of, um, best way to think about it is like be cleaned up. You look at their standards that are run, there are the samples that are run, and so you have to make sure that that run didn't have any instrument errors. You make sure that your values are good. 
compared to the standards that you run and then you have that value and then you take that value and then that's when you start interpreting it in terms of what does that value mean so how do you interpret don't stop there oh don't stop there okay so then <laughs> I want to the whole process so then, then it gets even more complicated um <laughs> So then, so let's say we have this, oh, we're using a bone example. So, so bone, um, bone is probably most difficult because you're taking that value and you're comparing it to some, say if you're, we're looking at geolocation questions, you're comparing it to a map. And so if you're comparing it to where already a bunch of known values are on that map, so that then you can take your value and you're gonna relate it to that map. But usually those maps are produced on material that isn't bone. So you have to convert the bone value into a water value and the water value then is compared. And so there's these, these points of potential error. And so right now there is a group of us that are really trying to get these maps based on known individuals that then we have their known biological tissues and we don't have to do any kind of calculations or offsets. And so that's kind of the, the reason I went to University of Tennessee Knoxville for my postdoc to do research because they have a donated human skeletal collection. So there in the 1980s was founded the Forensic Anthropology Center and their anthropological research facility is essentially there to ask questions about forensic science in terms of decomposition and skeletal analysis of human remains. And so people donate, this is one way that people donate their bodies to science. Uh, people give the, the greatest gift that they can give at the end of their life, which is donating uh, their remains to the University of Tennessee. And then the University of Tennessee has people like myself and other researchers that does research so that we know for future generations, we can be better forensic scientists. Uh, and so that was at University of Tennessee, that was the, the first, they're sometimes referred to as uh, body farms, but essentially it's, it was made big in terms of that term by a book in the 1990s by Patricia Cornwell. But really what they are is, is their donation facilities where then the people at University of Tennessee, they curate uh, this collection of donated skeletons. So then we have information on those individuals of, of where they were born, where they lived, so that scientists like myself can go and look at and do isotope work. So this is a new method that really was in its infancy in the 1980s, but now is finally being applied to forensic scientists, by forensic scientists to do this type of work. So we can go and use those known donors and help create these maps for each of the biological tissues. So we can create a map for hair and for fingernails and for teeth and for our bones so that we can do a better job of predicting where people were from. So of course this, we're, we're getting better at this in the United States. Uh, globally, there, you know, there's many more holes. We sometimes turn to archeology span to then 
look at their archaeological collections to know uh, comparative values. So it's a process, basically. It's, it's, it's a process and it's a new, you know, it's a, a science in its infancy. So we're using techniques that were only developed in chemistry uh, and biology in like the between the 50s and 70s. It was only applied to anthropology starting in the 1980s with work on archaeological collections and uh, primatology questions about like what prime what do primates eat. Then in the in the 90s, it was applied to early human fossils for questions about what were they eating and what environment they lived in. And only in really about the last 15 years have forensic anthropologists applied this to forensic science kinds of questions. So it's it's a science that is very much uh, in its infancy. So it, when you say forensics, um, I, I, it, that leads into the next question. I was so trying not to interrupt you, but I want to ask. Um, so what about like court cases and stuff like that? I mean, do you, have you had to be involved in stuff like that before? Uh, I have not. Um, to my knowledge, I believe there's only currently been one, if not two, court cases that have used stable isotopes uh, as as actually been been entered into evidence that are then someone has testified in court about using forensic uh, isotope work. So forensic isotopes as a field is also in its infancy. And it's not just people like myself who works on work on human remains. There are forensic isotope uh, specialists who work a lot in food science. So you know how you have to like, you can only call champagne champagne if it's from a particular region in France. Well, when people try to pass off like fake like, champagne, um, yeah. isotopes can be used to prove where that champagne was originally made. Same thing with um, honey. So honey is apparently the provenience of honey is a really important thing. And so people will test honey and make sure that it's representing exactly where it is supposed to have come from. So this idea of using stable isotopes is, is in forensics is very new, um, but very powerful, uh, not just food, animal poaching. So people who illegally uh, hunt and kill uh, animals, those bones, those remains, just like a human in a, in a forensic case, those can be tested and you can see where those um, specimens, those samples originally came from. So there's a lot of new newer applications that people are using isotopes as science. Um, let's see now. There was remember a couple of years ago in the Super Bowl where there was a commercial, and I think it was I don't remember exactly. It was like Bud Light or Coors Light that like went after the other as being like you know I think it must have been. I don't remember this. I remember just enough of this that it's kind of funny, but I'm not remembering all the details. But it was basically some court, one of them went after the other and sued the other because of this commercial in, in the Super Bowl. A colleague actually went and tested the isotopes of the beer 
to see whether or not the claims in the court case were true or not about the the origin of the beer. And so there, there's, yeah, there's a lot of different kind of funny things that, that isotopes we don't think about, but, but we can absolutely use isotopes to, to test and to investigate. So it's a, it's a very, again, this is why as an anthropologist, I use this method, this one very powerful method, but I ask it in a lot of different questions. So, yeah. This is so fantastic. And I think just that that evidence that you need to collect is just right there and there, you can't change it because it is what, I mean, that's what makes it up that the fact that it's a stable isotope, it's those number of neutrons aren't changing and that there's nothing you can do to, to, to mess with that data, I guess, or or the evidence. Yes. Yeah. It is pretty, pretty cool. It's a pretty cool technique. It seems like so many amazing things. What's the uh, one project that you've worked on that stands out the most for you? (laughs) I know it's like a personal question now. No, that's, uh, (laughs) so I loved my time at University of Tennessee, Knoxville during my postdoc. It was, uh, I was there for two years. It was a wonderful experience. Prior to that, I had only worked on, on, bones, human bones, teeth, animal bones, animal teeth. So I really kind of stayed in that area, but, but questions that I started to be interested in, I started to ask questions that took me to Tennessee that then had me collecting different kinds of samples. So suddenly I found myself collecting decomposing human tissue and associated maggots from fly larvae. And I would sometimes sit there and I'd be like, how did I find myself as an anthropologist who specializes in human osteology? And now I'm, I'm collecting maggots. And I mean, actually like right here on my debt, like I have a bag full of, of maggots um, that are, are, are samples that I've recently run. So those are probably the most memorable projects is that if you had asked me even five years ago, hey, Melanie, are you going to start working with maggots? I'd be like, no, I don't, no, no, no. I don't do soft tissue. I don't do things that are alive and, and gushy. I, I'm a bone person. Um, and, and now I find myself really deep into maggots and muscle tissue because uh, forensic anthropologists, most of the time, by law enforcement, they're asked kind of three areas of questions, which is who is the person? So, so oftentimes the person is not identified. So who is the person? Uh, then there may be asked about trauma. How did the person die? Is there trauma analysis that can be done? And then the other one is how long have they been dead? So, so what is that time since death? Um, and as anthropologists, we're answering that question of how long someone has been dead, we are not that great at it, honestly. There's a lot of research that needs to be done. There's a lot of different uh, factors and variables that go into how quickly a human body decomposes. And so it's just, it's a huge area that needs a lot of scientific research that becomes important. And so I kind of asked the question of like, well, isotopes, really good with helping human identification. 
probably not that great with trauma. But what can we do about that third question of asking questions about how long someone has been dead? And that's what got me into looking at muscle tissue and maggots. And, and that has been, it's been very memorable because, you know, I, I, I don't know why I seem to be one of the first people to ask this question of what can isotopes do in terms of post-mortem interval estimation? And, and it seems like they can be very helpful. So that's, that's been a very memorable pivot that, that my career has taken with this recent project. Wow. <laughs> I would like just, to go back to bones. Like I am definitely on my way to go and being like, I'm going back to bones and, and teeth and all of these other areas that I work in. Well, but it just sounds like though you're open to like the new, like with it being such a new science and, and like you're saying with the questions kind of depend on now thinking of these techniques that are going to give you the best results. Like it yeah. sounds like you're being an excellent scientist and about, okay, what can I use now that's going to help? So, Yeah, I did. I did have um, a graduate student once uh, collect a maggot and I just kind of looked at her. I was like, no, we don't, we know we're, that's my line. There's my line. And it was, so it is also is a way that, that you figure out your life. Where is that commitment to science? It turns out I won't collect everything in the name of science. There is a line. I found my line and, and yes. I, I understand. I've been at the Haskell's body farm here up in Northern Indiana. And uh, oh, yeah. that, uh, it takes a while to get that stench out. <laughs> I I am luckily luckily I have always had a really bad sense of smell, and I think that that is one of the reasons why I've been so so fortunate in the type of work I'm able to do. <laughs> Melody, thank you so much for joining us today. This has just been incredibly informative and just fascinating to learn about. Absolutely. Well, always. Happy to, to remind everyone that, that anthropology is at the intersect of so many different scientific fields and that we, we love to borrow methods from all other fields to then apply to these very kind of unique human related questions. Thank you for listening to this episode of Science from the Experts from Purdue University Superheroes of Science. If you like this episode, subscribe, give us a positive view and share the love. Hammer down.